Good morning. Welcome. We are uh, glad you're here this morning. Uh, special greeting to our first-timers and those returning. We, are, we hope you'll be woven in the fabric of our church life and life with Christ more than anything. He's the one that we magnify. He's the centerpiece. He's the head of this church. And uh, we want to keep it that way and uh, be better at being the body of Christ under his headship. Take a moment and fill out a connection card. If you haven't done that yet, put in the basket when it's passed later on. If you're not in a life group, we'd love to help you get in one. And always let us know that on your card there. And it's a, it's a great joy to be with other people in the Word and, and wrestling with God's truth and emerging stronger for having been with people. So make sure you do that. Next week, of course, is Resurrection Day. It's a day when uh, churches everywhere are filled to overflow. We hope this one will be. And so be inviting people. People are sensitive to invitations right now. They're more likely to come uh, to worship. And so I want to encourage you um, to, uh, for you in the back, there are seats scattered down front here. Sorry to embarrass you coming in late. But anyway, uh, uh, there are seats down here if you're, if you're looking for some. All right, come on down. Um, so be inviting people this week to come with you to the worship service and also, if any of you are willing to adjust your schedule for one Sunday and come 8 o'clock, we have three worships here, three in the sanctuary, six worship services. And so if any of you are willing to come at 8 o'clock, that's the smallest group, of course. And uh, if you're not too grumpy at that hour, if you'd come, it helps the parking situation and traffic flow even inside the building. Uh, so, so help us out that way. If at all possible, we would appreciate it. As we begin our uh, service this morning, I do want to... Uh, utter a prayer for the, some Egyptian Christians. Maybe you saw on the news this morning that two Christian, Coptic Christian churches were bombed today on the Lord's Day. 26 believers were murdered or killed, and uh, scores were injured. And uh, you know we have a great privilege to be able to meet here together without that kind of fear. So let's lift up the Coptic church there in Egypt and believers and ourselves as we continue our worship. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, we do thank you for the privilege of lifting up the name of Jesus. And we do it today, Father, without any fear. It's an honor to be here, and it's a great freedom we enjoy. Thank you. But so many in the world, Father, do not have that same uh, sense of freedom. And Father, today I particularly lift up these two churches that have suffered through the bombings today, the Lord's Day. There's a lot, much grieving, there's weeping going on in families. And I pray, Father, that you will send a sense of peace over those families. That in the midst of turmoil, there will be an abiding joy nevertheless. I pray that the foundation on which they stand, Jesus Christ, will not be shaken. Their confidence will not suffer because of this. In fact, I pray... They will count it a privilege to suffer for the name of the Lord. I pray for the watching world around them. I pray that those close to these families will watch the way they deal with this and will be moved to check out Jesus and who he is. So, Father, please be their mainstay today and make them strong to the very end. Love them well. Bless our time together, Father, that we use these few minutes in a proper way to better align ourselves with you. In Jesus' name, amen. We're in Matthew 21 today, Matthew's Gospel, chapter 21. If you have your Bibles or some kind of device with you to follow along, would you call yourself a control freak? Now, if you're not sure, just ask the person sitting next to you. 
You're probably good a good answer. There are some clues, you know, like in your closet, are all your clothes hanging color-coordinated? Uh, guys, does your workbench have outlines of where the tools go? Uh, is your wallet insanely organized? You know, when you go out with people for lunch, do you have to be the person who is in charge of splitting the bill so it's perfect? Or this, are you the person on the elevator who keeps pushing the button to get there faster? Psychology Today uh, did an article about control freaks and suggested there are some real indications of people who are controlling. There are people who, who, who are always correcting other people when they're wrong. They're always trying to win an argument or have, a last, have the last word. They refuse to admit when they've been wrong. There are people that tend to judge and criticize others. They, they have a driving rain, uh, rage about them when they're on the road. Now, now, if any of these things touch on you, my guess is you have some relationship issues. <laughs> but more than that, you have, a relationship, you have a, a relationship problem with God himself. Because God has taught us through his word that in order to come to him, we have to surrender. We have to give it up. We have to give up control of our own lives and give him absolute control and say over every aspect of our being, all that we are. Consider our text today as Jesus is riding into the city on this Palm Sunday. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples saying to them, go to the village ahead of you and at once you will find and once you will find a donkey tied there with the colt by her, untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, say that the Lord needs them and he'll send them right away. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to daughter Zion, see your king comes to you gentle riding on a donkey and on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The disciples went and did as Jesus had instructed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and placed their cloaks on them for Jesus to sit on. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road, while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. The crowds that went ahead of him and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. When Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, Who is this? The crowds answered, This is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. Now, when we read a text of Scripture, it's always tempting. We often do this. We fly right to the question, well, what does, this, what does this passage mean to me? And that's a good question, but not at the outset. If we don't first look at the context, what's happening, and what the setting is, we can r- jump to the wrong conclusions when we're making application. So let me give you three things about the setting here before we make application. First of all, note Jesus' name. Verse 1 says, as they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage. Bethphage was just a little village on the side, the slope of the Mount of Olives on the other side, far side from Jerusalem. Matthew tells us that right before this event in Matthew 21, there were two blind men that cried out to Jesus, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on us. It's found in our text as well, this title, son of David. The title, son of David 
the, 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 the Jews were so familiar with. This is one of the titles given by the prophets of the Old Testament by which the final king would be known. The ultimate king, the one whom God would send for them, would be known this way as son of David. It was a title for him. Now, you find this title other places in the writing of the, the biographies of Jesus. But, but this is the first time when these blind men the call that Jesus acknowledges publicly that he is the son of David. Now, he's made claims to be equal with the father, one with the father, that sort of thing. But this is the first time that he has received this title, son of David. And it must have stunned the disciples. They must have known now he is ready to go public with, with, with who he is. Because the disciples had wanted this from the beginning. They had seen his power. And you know, when we study Jesus so often, we see him telling people he's, he's healed. Now, don't tell anybody I did this. You know, or, or the disciples have a plan for him. He said, no, no, we're not going to do it that way. They wanted him to be more public, but Jesus always played it down because they didn't understand his kind of kingship. And he wasn't ready to be revealed fully because of that. And until they would be, well, even, even when he's crucified, they still don't get it. It's not until after the resurrection that the disciples finally understand. These 12 knew what Jesus could do. They knew what was possible. So now that he accepts the term son of David, they know he's got to carry on with it or he's going to be crushed. Second, notice Jesus' control. He was in charge. He orchestrated this whole occasion here. He doesn't show up in Jerusalem outside the gate. Man, there are a lot of people here. I think I'll jump on a donkey and see what kind of attention I get. No, he, he orchestrates this. The biographers of Jesus, four of them, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, it's an intriguing thing, this matter of inspiration. Inspiration means God breathed. And in some magnificent way, God, took, God, God worked within the heart's and lives of these four writers of the life of Jesus, and he wove that together with their experiences, the eyewitnesses, the investigation they did to preserve what, what he wanted us to know. Now, because the biographers are so concise, they seldom spend time on peripherals. But here, six verses are used to describe what is going on here in Jesus orchestrating us. The crowd around Jerusalem knows what has happened. Jesus has raised Lazarus from the dead. Jesus usually doesn't come down here. He doesn't come down to this place because there's more animosity toward him in Jerusalem, more political junk going on in Jerusalem, more animosity toward him. He stays in the north around Galilee. Now he's coming in in full control uh, wanting, wanting to be obviously obvious that he's coming into the city. And he welcomes the praise of all these people. Third, notice Jesus' animal. It's a donkey. Now, think like a disciple. The disciples are happy. They're, they're finally celebrating that Jesus is willing to do this. That he's coming in, that he wants to be announced as the son of David, finally. But, but, but now, it seems odd. You know, they, they, they've seen him before. You know, he would heal people and restore sight to the blind. And, and uh, cleanse lepers. He, he would feed these thousands of people with the little boy's lunch. They saw him walk on water. All these things that he would do. And then out of that, he would talk about suffering. 
And the, and the disciples just never quite understood all that. Now they have hope that it's all going to come out. But how mysterious this is. He's the perfect one to overcome, overtake the Romans under whose rule the Jews are living. But instead of getting on a war horse, he gets on a donkey. What an enigma. He's one in charge. He is one who, who plans this. He lets his name be known and he gets on a donkey. The whole message is rooted in one statement in our text. Your king comes to you. Say it with me. Your king comes to you. It's a quote from Zechariah the prophet. How we allow him to ride into our lives depends on this issue of control. You see, we all have an issue with that, don't we? We all have an issue with control. And if, we are not allow, if we're not willing to allow him in the way he deserves, he will never really be king of our lives. He's got to come in the way that he must come. So three ways he comes. First of all, he comes to disrupt. King Jesus comes to disrupt. He's not reluctant. Jesus is not a reluctant king, and he's not an immodest king. I mean, he's not a modest king. Uh, he, he, he's a humble king, but he's not modest. You know, you can't be modest and also make the claim that you're equal with the Father in heaven. He confronts religious leaders. You know, this is Sunday before he's going to be crucified on Friday. And in the beginning of his ministry, remember, he went into the temple and he threw out the money changers, threw over the tables, drove them out. He's going to do that tomorrow. This is, this is Sunday the triumphal entry day, he's going to do it again tomorrow. That's not a reluctant king. That's not, an, that's not, an, that's not a modest king. And now, J Jesus comes in, and he has the right to do this because of who he is. He has the authority to call you and me to come and die. He has the right to call us to deny ourselves and take up our crosses and follow him. He has the right to say to us, if you're not willing to love me more, then your spouse, your kids, your parents, your job, your future, your college education, your money, if you're not willing to love me more than all these other things, you are not worthy to be a disciple of mine. He has the authority to say those kinds of things. That's why all of this, this the relationship we have with Jesus, it calls for intellectual integrity. And what I mean by that, there are so many people in our culture, people that you have as friends and family members who will say to you today, well, yeah, I know, yeah, I, I believe Jesus died on the cross for us. I believe, he, I believe he rose from the dead. But there's no life that is devoted to him. And that is, that is intellectually a lack of integrity about information you know and accept is true without any application to life. You see, in other words, if I'm going to sit down and have coffee with somebody, Panera, about being a Christian, I would much rather sit down with somebody who says, that is all bunk, that Christianity stuff. I'd rather have somebody like that than somebody who sits there and says, yeah, I believe Jesus. Now, like, I believe rose from the dead. Yeah, but it's, you know, I just, I just, no, I'm not just not getting, it's not my thing. That kind of person, I don't know what to do with that kind of person who knows and accepts all that but doesn't let that grip their hearts. You see, Jesus writes later in the first century church to the church of Laodicea, he says to them, I wish you were hot or cold. As it is, you're lukewarm, and I'm going to spit you out of my mouth. 
Does that describe anybody today here? See, it's this lukewarmness, this casual kind of belief that is so sickening to Jesus. He calls for one or the other. Either, see, see if a person says to me, I think, I think it is bunk, then I've got a starting point. I've got all the evidence to look at. I can lay it all. Well, this, just consider this. And they're, if they're willing to think and examine the evidence, I mean, it's, it's, it's profound evidence. And there's plenty of, there's ample evidence that Jesus is who he says he is, if you're willing to think. But most people aren't willing to think. And the people who have just mentally said, yeah, I think all that happened, and no life application, they're in a worse place, I believe. I truly believe. You know, he comes to convict us. You can't can't treat him as just a magician in your life. If he's not your king, you can't come to his as your shepherd. If he's not your king, you can't come to him for counsel. If he's not your king, don't ask him for wisdom. If he's not your king, don't ask him for peace. And certainly if he's not your king, don't ask him to save you. He has to be king, Lord of all. He comes. He comes to disrupt. He also comes in irony. He comes in irony. He is forthright about his identification, but he's also an enigma because it says here, your king comes. What's the next word? What's it say? Your king comes to you. Oh, I'm sorry. After to you. What's the next word after that? I forgot the phrase. All right, Jessica, I'm sorry. Your king comes to you. How? Gentle. Well, that doesn't sound very kingly, does it? That your king comes gentle? This is what makes this such an enigma. Your king comes to you gentle. Now, we've already, of course, talked about the donkey situation. And by the way, this comes from Zechariah the prophet, who wrote hundreds of years before Jesus Christ lived. And you know, Jesus isn't thumbing through the prophecy thinking, oh, I've got to find a donkey because I'm supposed to ride a donkey before I'm crucified, you know. Now, people look at prophecy that way, like Jesus checks out the Bible and thinks, oh, i got to, oh, I got quite a list to accomplish before I get crucified. No, it's in the prophecy because God in his foreknowledge knew it was to happen. So that when it would happen, we'd say, oh, it all fits together. God knew this. This is one of the ways we know this is who he says he is. He fulfills the scripture. Even in Genesis, we can't get out of the first book of the Bible before it says this. The scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until he to whom it belongs shall come, and the obedience of the nation shall be his. He will tether his donkey to a vine, his colt to the choicest branch. He will wash his garments in wine, his robes in blood of grapes. It's so royal sounding. A scepter eternal, that's eternal. The nations will be his. Uh, The blood is symbolized by grapes. So what kind of king comes riding on a donkey? How does, how does a king win? How is he going to beat his oppressor? This king is going to be slaughtered because this king comes riding in as a servant. He comes in vulnerable and defenseless. You and I are saved through weakness, not strength. We are saved through somebody laying down their life for us. And that's why entry into his kingdom is the same way. It's about laying down our lives. And it's out of laying down our lives that we are made strong. It's so contrary to the world, isn't it? This message you don't hear anywhere else. But this is the truth of the matter. We lay down our lives to be made strong. All other religions, all other philosophies, humanism in all its forms says, I'm just going to make myself better. 
And you can to some degree. You know, you can, you can stop cussing. And you can stop insulting your wife. You can learn to be a better dad by reading a book. You know, you can make some changes. But see, basically, that becomes behavior modification. And Jesus did not die for our sins, so our behavior would be modified. He, he came to die for us so that we could have a new heart. We'd be new from the inside. And everything becomes new inside. There's a new desire, a new thirst, a new hunger, a new way of being because of who he is in our lives. You see, that's what this is all about. This is the ironic thing about this king who comes. He doesn't come like a normal king comes. He comes very unusually vulnerable, defenseless, in weakness, so that we are made strong. What a God. What a Savior like this. We're saved by grace. And your king comes in celebration. See, your king comes gentle. He comes. It's present tense. So when he came, he means he's not away from us, but he's not, he will come, though he will, certainly, nor, does he, nor, nor is he totally here. One of the beautiful aspects of this whole scene, of course, is waving the palm branch. I saw some parents of kids uh, carrying palm branches on this Palm Sunday out there. I wanted to cut some palms this morning. I couldn't find any in my yard. But here's a couple of verses. The Old Testament, Psalm 96, 11 says, let the heavens be glad, let the earth rejoice, and then the trees of the woods sing for joy when he comes to judge the earth. Isaiah 55 says, you shall go out with joy, be led forth in peace, then will the mountains and the hills break forth into singing, and the trees will clap their hands. Now, these scriptures speak first of that initial coming of Christ, the Messiah. He brings redemption to the earth, and all the celebrate, all the earth notices, and the, the, the wise men come to worship him from Persia, and the, and the humble shepherds are there. They're worshiping this new king. Redemption has come. And so, our souls today are saved through and through. When we are immersed into him, we put all our confidence in the blood of Jesus on the cross. But we're not fully redeemed, because just look at each other. We don't look all that great. We have blemishes. We have some pain. Some of you come in limping because of something that happened this week. Or you have scars because you've had surgeries. You have back issues, whatever that is. That just means we haven't been fully redeemed yet. But there's a day coming when our king comes so triumphantly, and we're going to be given new bodies on that day when he comes. And on that day, every eye will see him, every knee will bow, and every tongue will be confessing that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. But until then, the whole earth is groaning, Romans chapter 8 says. The whole earth is groaning. How? Through tornadoes and hurricanes and and natural disasters all over the world. Through all those things, the earth is groaning to be redeemed. There's weeds coming up. Already in my landscaping, weeds are coming before the flowers. Are you ticked off about that? I am too. So, it's all a statement that the earth is groaning to be redeemed. It's groaning to be redeemed. And it's going to be, and God is going to create a new heaven, a new earth, and he's going to give you and me a new body, and we are going to be knockouts. And how's that going to be? I don't know. You know, we have five senses now. Maybe he's going to give us a sixth sense. Or maybe we're going to have a hundred senses in heaven. He can do that, you know. Whatever it's going to be. And you know what it's going to be like when our king comes the next time? When our king comes the next time, and we say, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. I mean, we're going to have work to do, but we're never going to get tired. You know those, that joyful feeling you get when you serve somebody and you do something good for somebody? You just feel happy that you did that? 
Now, you multiply that a million times over, and that's eternity, day and night. And you're never going to get tired. You're never going to get worn out. You never have to take a break. There's this constant flood of joy in your life, in my life, as we serve the King of kings forever and ever on his throne. What a God, what a king. To have that as an anticipation. These three questions I'll leave you with. First, will you let him disrupt your life? Will you let him disrupt your life? Now, you know, we don't live in an area where uh, we've got palm trees. These people are from Florida. I just met them this morning. You got palm trees in your yard down there? Do you? Oh, man, I'm envious. You know, <laughs> love palm trees. You know, I, I was thinking this morning, you know, I, I can't cut any palm branches, but, you know, I have these palms. And I just want to challenge you this week, every day when you spend time with the Lord, uh, at the beginning of your day, I hope you do that at the beginning of your day when you wake up or sometime before your day gets going that you spend some time with the Lord, a few minutes at least, and just lay with your hands open, with your palms upward. And say, God, these, uh, these palms represent that I'm ready for you today because every day your king comes and he wants to come further. And are you willing throughout your day, God, today, every conversation, I pray will be seasoned with salt. And I'll be careful with my words. Help me respond to every person today in my life. Help me to perform in my job, my business, lead my classroom, uh, take my classes, whatever it is, with a sense of your presence, that I would be your representative in my relationships today, just by my demeanor, by my facial expressions, by my interest in people, by the way I listen, the way I do my schoolwork, the way I do everything. I want you to be the king of my life. Second, will you let your king make you humble and bold? Will you make, let him make you, that's what Jesus was. He was both humble and he was bold. The problem with us, we, we put on this false humility where we're just going to be this silent witness and, uh, you know, I just feel like I just need to be an example for other people. Well, that's good and that's commendable and that urges you the right to be heard, but you won't win anybody to Jesus by osmosis. It doesn't work that way. It comes with words. Now, being humble around people can earn you that right. But if it's true humility, when you meet your king face to face, when you see him and know him in his humility, it also makes you bold to speak for him in the right way. If you, if you try to be bold for him without passing that way, that's what makes you an obnoxious Bible thumper. And there's no room for that in our culture. Now, so stop that if that's you. We have to learn that the quiet nature of Jesus and how we lived in a way that people wanted to hear him and they came close. Let's do that. And will you let your king give you joy? Will you let him be your primary source for joy? Now, you may be in the best stage of your life right now. Marriage is working for you, you know. Kids are in a good stage. They're not being brats right now, none of them. Uh, you don't know what's happened, but I'm going to enjoy it for today. Tomorrow's another day. Uh, you know, bills are paid. We've got a little extra left over. I don't, I'm, you know, life's really good right now. However that looks to you, whatever that good day is or season is, it's nothing compared to Jesus Christ being the true source of your joy if you're not there. All those other things shift. They change. They're unpredictable. And you're going to be all over the page. If, if Jesus Christ is your true joy, it doesn't matter what the conditions are, there is still this center core to life. Does that mean you're happy all the time? No. Does it mean there's never sadness? No. 
Does it mean that you don't have some anxiety you have to work through and press them? No, it doesn't mean that at all. But it does mean underneath it all and surrounding you is this core joy that you will not be shaken in your faith. That's where it is. So today your king has come to you. He came some 2,000 years ago. He was certainly gentle then, wasn't he? As a helpless baby in a manger. And he rode into Jerusalem that day. Your king comes to you gentle on a donkey. And our king is coming to our lives as well. And he's coming back again. And every day he keeps coming to us. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Friends, if you don't know him as your king, your absolute king, you know, there's a sense in which we're always on that journey, right? Just when I think I've made him king over every area, man, he disrupts me. And he shows me, exposes me for who I am. And I realize he really isn't king over every area. And I have to keep learning that. It's a lifelong journey, right? Process. But it's also true that he is coming again. And praise God, through the blood of Jesus looking at me, he sees me as a perfect son of God. Now, that's not true from my perspective, but through the blood of Jesus, that's how he sees me. That's how he sees you if you've been born again. If you've not been born again, why would you mess around with that? Because the Lord is coming back. He comes to you. And you don't want him to come to you in wrath. You want him to come to you even on that day victoriously as your conqueror, the one in whose name you have lived and given your life. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, who has come in the name of the Lord, and who is yet to come in the name of the Lord. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, thank you for being the joy of our lives, and I pray that we'll be more so all the time. Thank you for being our true king. May you be highly praised as we celebrate every day your lordship in Jesus' name.